Gentlemen, no Mr. Producer here, no theme tune, no intro, no special effects, just me, your friend Tristan Tate, joining you for a cigar evening. So, I'm getting much more views than I typically did on previous cigar meetings. I guess I've grown in popularity. I want to thank all of my followers. I just crossed 2 million on Twitter. And if you don't know how a cigar evening works, and if it's your first time here, I'm going to explain to you how it works. It's a very relaxed, chilled conversation between me and my fans, everybody who likes to listen to me. And I light up a cigar, and by the time the cigar is over, then your question time with me is over, and you have to stop talking to me, and I sign off and I go, I go do other stuff. And what I typically do is I begin the evening by introducing what cigar it is that I smoke. One person said no sound. Can everyone hear me okay? Has one person just ruined my flow by saying no sound? Okay, no sound. Tell me if the sound is good, everybody. Yes, they can hear me. Okay, whoever said no sound, your speakers are down and you just interrupted the whole flow of the evening for no reason, but it's fine. As you know, I'm Tristan Talisman Tate, and thank you for joining me for a cigar evening today. I'm going to first introduce the cigar that I'm smoking. So everyone knows Hey Chapman are my favorite brand. Everyone knows that I smoke a lot of Cohibas. I'm a big cigar guy. But today I have something very special for the real elite cigar smokers of the world. If you, if you recognize this box, it's a little bit messy. It's a little bit dusty. It's been in my humidor for about 11 months. I've been saving it for a special occasion. This is an SUA Alteza Sinful Outrage of Monte Carlo, which I think is one of the coolest names for any cigar in the world. It's wrapped in 24 karat gold leaf, comes in its own little case, and this will cost you, depending on taxes in the country, anything between 1,000 and 1,500 American dollars. So remember, that's an SUA Alteza Sinful Outrage of Monte Carlo. So I've been saving this for a special occasion. I thought, you know what? I've been in jail. What could be more special than my first night back with my friends on the Tristan, the Talisman Tate cigar nights? So, open a drink, obviously. Smoking and drinking isn't a good idea. And I want all of my fans to know this. The least impressive thing you could do when you talk to me is send me a picture of yourself with a cigar in your face or drinking a glass of whiskey saying, oh, look, Tristan, I'm like you. No, you're not like me. I only started smoking. I only started drinking, really, when I was already a retired professional athlete. I keep my body in exceptionally good form. I train every day, make sure I'm powerful enough. You're allowed to smoke because it's okay. But you have to pay for your sins and do the work. I, I remind people of that on every single podcast because I often get accused by people of promoting smoking and drinking when I do nothing of the sort. Now, the way that the cigar evening works is I've asked already on Twitter for questions, and I've written the most interesting of them down. I'm going to be reading some of them out, and I'm also going to discuss what I'm not going to be talking about. But if you have a good question, send it to me across in a super chat. There's lots of them. I'm more likely to see the big super chats and more likely to answer, but I'm not one of these streamers begging or asking for money. Because all of this money is donated to Tate Pledge, mine and my brother's charity, where we typically use the funds to feed hungry children. 
in war-torn countries all across the world. So all your money is going to a good cause. But if you want to get my attention, send those nice big super chats over. But I'm going to save you some money first and foremost and tell you what I'm not going to be talking about. I'm not going to be talking about my time in prison. And I'll tell you why. Not sure it's worth a thousand dollars, but it's pretty good. Here's the reason I'm not going to be talking about my time in prison. And I'm going to do a quick shout out to a channel that I like. He's got Instagram. He's got YouTube. He's got Twitter, I believe. Before I went to jail, the only ever show I ever watched on the internet was a show called Fresh Out by a big black brother by the name of Big Herc 916. So if you have some time, type in your Google search now, Big Herc, H-E-R-C, 916. Now, Big Herc 916, I've actually met him in real life, and I've stayed in touch with him over the last five or six years since meeting him. So I guess I can consider him a friend of mine. He is one of the realest people in the world. He runs a channel and the Instagram page where he talks about life in prison. So he has been in prison for over 10 years for bank robbery. He didn't snitch on his friends, even though he got snitched on. And he's out doing well for himself, making a lot of money, living a good life now. And he talks about his prison experiences. Now, I'm going to detail my prison experience exclusively with Big Herc, either right here on Rumble or on one of his platforms. Because I've known him for so long and I just wasn't cool enough to join on his, uh, his channel. I'd never served time anywhere. So I wasn't qualified to speak to him about the prison experience. But now that I am, that's where all the details of my prison experience are, are going to come out. So give Big Herc 916 a follow. He's a good friend. He's a good guy. And the rules of prison are actually quite universal. The power dynamics of it, the currency dynamics of it, the secret prison economy, keeping yourself safe. Everything he detailed in his Fresh Out series, I used to watch years ago thinking, I'll never go to jail. I'm not a criminal actually was very useful to me in my time in prison. So Big Herc, if you're watching, I love you, bro. Look forward to talking to you soon. But if you're going to send Super Chats and you're going to ask me questions, do not ask me about what my experience in prison was like because I'm not interested in answering that at this particular time and place. Now, there's a bunch of questions I've been asked that I don't know if I should get into. Tristan, talk about Jews. Tristan, talk about porn, the war in Ukraine, the Jewish question. People hit me with the flat earth, with a bunch of wild, crazy shit. But as a intelligent, well-balanced individual, I'd like to think that I can answer some of these questions in a well-balanced, intelligent way without offending anybody, which is very important. So when people ask me, because these are the most common questions, I put stars next to them in terms of how many times I've counted that I've got these questions. People are asking me, Tristan, what do you think of this Dylan Mulvaney? What do you think of this admiral who's transgender? The answer is I don't live in the United States, so I don't think about transgenders, but I do have an opinion about them. And like most of my opinions, they're very balanced and they're very rational. And I try to make sense of it 
in my own particular way. So, transgenders, look, let's take transgenderism for what it is. Transgenderism is, in one way or another, a form of plastic surgery, isn't it? If you wish to have a phalloplasty or implants and you're a man or you're a woman and you're getting stuff cut up and cut off and changed to appear differently on the outside, it is, in effect, a form of plastic surgery. And you couldn't be a convincing transgender person without plastic surgery. So I don't really care who gets plastic surgery. But we treat this particular type of plastic surgery very different from other types of plastic surgery. I'm going to give you an example of taking transgender language and applying it to other forms of plastic surgery. I know millions of girls with fake breasts, implants. And if we were to take their particular situation and frame it in the transgender ethos, it would go a little something like this. This girl with big fake tits doesn't have fake tits. They're not fake. She was born in the wrong body. She is a girl who has big tits, but she was born in a body of a woman with small tits. So the surgery she had isn't artificial. She was just affirming her true identity. She was affirming her true identity, and you are not allowed to say her tits are fake. Not only are you not allowed to say her, her tits are fake, but she is going to go into schools and talk to young girls who are below the age of sexual consent about being born in the wrong body and how they may need tit-affirming surgery when they're older. Now, of course, if you understand anything, if you frame it in that way, it sounds very stupid. I, for one, have had a hair transplant. My hair was taken from the back of my head and put on top of my head. That is a plastic surgery procedure. It is an artificial procedure. But if I were to frame it in that way, I would say this. No, 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 no. This isn't artificial at all. I was born in the body of a man whose hair falls out in his 30s. But really, I'm a man whose hair doesn't fall out. That's who I feel inside. So, Frozen, yo, you sure? Okay, wait, am I frozen? Okay, hopefully I'm not frozen. Am I back? Okay, frozen, okay. <laughs> Fixed? Fixed? Better. Okay, we're back. Good. Good, we're back. So as I was saying, I have had a hair transplant, but I was born in the wrong body. I was born in the body of a man whose hair started falling out in his early 30s, but I'm not that guy. I am a man whose hair never falls out. So this is not a transplant. This is affirming care that affirmed who I really am. And... <laughs> 
And you're not allowed to say I've had a hair transplant. No, no, no. That's bigotry. That's Nazism. And also, I get to go into schools and talk to your children about my hair falling out and how one day they may need a hair transplant because they were born in the wrong body. So that's my opinion on transgenderism, I guess summed up in a unique and intelligent way that perhaps you haven't heard before. I don't understand why no other type of healthcare or plastic surgery or medical care is affirming and why it's only this type of plastic surgery that gets its special treatment. I feel like you're allowed to get whatever surgery you like. If you are allowed to get fake hair, fake tits, liposuction, you could get shin implants to be taller. Don't talk to my kids about your surgery and don't tell me that that's natural and that that's who you really are. It is artificial. It is surgery. Let's get over it. So let's apply the same logic to transgenderism. And if you are a transgender person watching this, I don't mean to offend you in any way. I hope that you get the plastic surgery you want. I hope you really want that surgery. I hope it really makes you happy. And I hope you have a great life. That's my attitude towards transgender people. But this is a very important question to ask because I feel like a lot of my fans, the younger and more ignorant, of my fa- uh, ignorant people in my fan base, want me to get on here and trash cha- transgender people. Look, I mean, they're going through some sort of struggle, whatever you want to call it. And I'm not going to sit on here and trash anybody. Which brings me to the next difficult question that everyone loves to ask me. Everybody loves to ask me questions and they think they're going to be really difficult and they think I'm going to get in trouble. Is my cigar burning? Yeah, it is. Twenty-four karat gold smoke. Remember that. So I get spammed all the time by racists or Nazis or white supremacists or whatever you want to call them, who say, Tristan, you're scared to tackle the Jewish question. Now I know some of you in this chat have probably just got a raging hard on right now. Tristan's going to talk about the Jewish question. Am I? Am I scared to address the Jewish question? Because I know what you mean when you say the Jewish question to me. I know what you want me to say. I know what conspiracies you want me to peddle. Arguing that maybe disproportional numbers of people in certain positions in Hollywood or banking or whatever are Jewish doesn't seem like something worth moaning about to me. Because to me, it's like moaning about the fact that most coal miners are men. There are discrepancies in race, religion, gender. Yeah, the sound is working. In almost every profession in the world. Stop spamming no sound. There's something wrong with your computer. The sound is working. Okay. Now, the Jewish question, and when people ask me to talk about it, is something along the lines of, well, they secretly control the world and they're keeping all of us down and blah, 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 blah. Here's why you could take your Jewish question, shine it up real nice, and stick it up your little racist butthole. I'm going to tell you why. Because I don't actually give a fuck if there were a secret cabal of Jewish people controlling the world or a secret cabal of black people controlling the world or a secret cabal of cisgender white men controlling the world or a secret cabal of Mexicans 
controlling the world. I don't care. And I'm going to tell you why I don't care and why you shouldn't care. You shouldn't care because I, Tristan Tate, was born as a mixed race man in the projects on a council estate in England. I lived in a homeless shelter for years and I am now in the top 1% of the top 1% in terms of income bracket. I'm in a very high percent in terms of influence bracket. I have 37,000 people listening to me right now. A lot of you respect me. A lot of you care what I have to say. A lot of you want to listen to my opinions. Loads of you want to listen to my opinions about the Jewish question. Who cares? Stop caring. If you become a multi-billionaire and somehow Jews are messing with you, by all means, go on your stupid little crusade. But when you're living in your mother's basement and you're poor and you're broke and you have no money, and no one cares who you are, and no one cares what you say, and you have no influence on the world, and why are you obsessing over the fact that some Jewish people hold positions of power in the world? Get over it and move on. That is my answer to the Jewish question. No, I am not afraid to tackle the Jewish question. Move up in the world. Because whether Jews control the world, or blacks control the world, or whites control the world, or Mexicans or Chinese people control the world. The rules of the game are set and you're not going to change them by spamming on Reddit forums. What you need to do is learn the rules of the game and navigate the game in a way that you are going to win and checkmate your opponents. So until you are a billionaire, do not ask me about the Jewish question. Billionaires only. That's my new rule. And that is the only answer on the Jewish question I'm ever going to give because I don't give a shit. I'm rich. I have everything I want. Did the Jews stand in my way? No. Did white men stand in my way? No. Truly no one's standing in your way but yourself. And that's the nature of the universe. Mm. I take it back. The cigar's getting good. I take it back. Maybe the 24-hour, 24-karat gold is the way forward. Another popular question. I'll cover this one really quick, actually. This is going to take me 10 seconds. I have a great business idea for you. No, 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 you don't. I'm busy. I work 24 hours a day. I don't want your business idea. If it's great, I wish you good luck. Make all the money you want. Don't send me your business ideas. No, another one. Hey, I want to come work for you. I'll come work for free. I'll I get hundreds of those a day. If I need someone to work for me, I'll find them within the war room or within the real world. I'll, I'll identify talent and hire. Begging to come and live in my house and work for me isn't the, isn't the uh, philanthropic deed you think it is. You get to live in a mansion and travel around the world on private jets. Yeah, I get it. And what do you want to do in return? Cut my grass. You probably have no talents. I will identify talent if I need it. No, you cannot come work for me. All right, those two are out of the way. Next. And this is a very good one. And we're going to dive into my current situation a little bit with this one. Because I get this one a lot. And I think of myself as a very fair person. And if haters of mine ask me to explain myself, I'm the first one to tell them to go suck a dick. But when fans of mine ask me for explanations to things that they find troubling, I am the first person to talk to my fans. So this question is actually, it came from some hater, some dork today on, on Twitter. I know he's watching. He said, hey, why don't you talk about how you say you're anti-porn, but used to run a cam girl studio and it's immoral. And I said, yeah, I'll answer your question. Then he called me triggered. So I blocked him. I was like, I politely told you I'd answer your question, but this comes from a lot of fans of mine as well. How can I be anti-porn when I used to run a webcam studio? Well, 
I'm sure most of you know the answer to that question. Most of you know the answer to the question is because people change. My brother is a Muslim. My brother would never, ever, ever have me running a webcam studio in his house or near him ever again. And I don't blame him. And you say, oh, can people really change that much? Well, why don't you do a little bit, bit of historical research and tell me who was Malcolm X before he converted to Islam and found God? Who was he? What did he do? I'm reading the chat. Does anyone know? Take a drink. Correct. Well done. One person got it right. Malcolm X was a pimp. Congratulations, Fraser. You are correct. He was a pimp and a street hustler. Now, if you're talking about running a webcam studio, completely legal, tax-paying business, there's work contracts. There are hundreds of webcam studios all over Bucharest, very popular business in Eastern Europe. Loads of people do it. But yes, Malcolm X was in fact a pimp. He took woman, women and turned them into prostitutes, made them walk the streets, have sex with other men to increase his bank balance. He changed. He became a Muslim. He became a great leader. One, people could change. Two, I've been anti-porn. I'm going to throw a spanner in the works now. Since before I ran a webcam studio. So you have to understand, even back when I was an atheist and I had no problem running a streaming studio, you know, pretty girls would talk to dudes and get their tits out. I had no problem running this kind of business. I was still anti-porn because porn is bad for men. And when I say I'm anti-porn and I tell young men you should not watch porn, ever, ever said to young men, hey, go on webcams and watch them. It's good for you. It's good for your health. It's good for your mindset. No, I was anti-porn even when I sold it. Very much in the way that a man of good religious convictions can run a corner store, a 7-Eleven, and be against alcoholism and violence, but he sells vodka. He's running his business. He's trying to make money in the free market economy as best as he can. Frozen. I'll tell you when I'm back. Matrix stack, frozen. Waiting, waiting. I should come back. We're back. Very much like a man who runs a corner store could be against alcoholism and could be against violence but but a man could come into your corner store buy five bottles of vodka a night beat the shit out of his wife you know become an alcoholic destroy his life personal responsibility is everybody's own burden to carry i know men who own casinos i know men who run webcam studios i know men who run restaurants corner stores bars pubs that sell alcohol Men that run stores that sell cigarettes. It is your personal responsibility to carry. Well, I mean, it's your burden to carry your own responsibility, your own personal responsibility, which means when I tell you young men, don't watch porn, it's bad for you. Just take my advice and listen. Don't make excuses and say, well, you used to do this. So it's no, that doesn't make it okay. And I would never run that kind of business again. And which gets me onto my next point, which I think is very important to cover. Because many fans of mine have asked a very fair question. You used to run a webcam studio. Isn't that in a way human trafficking? Aren't they trying to say that your webcam studio is human trafficking? Or Tristan, you uh, you know, you admitted to having girls work for you online. Doesn't that help the police? I want to make this clear once and for all for everybody who brings this up to me, both fan and hater. 
There is zero connection with the current criminal charge against me and any business I used to run in the past. The official story is that in 2021, many years after any studio I ran was already shut, in 2021, I started kidnapping and brainwashing people to steal money from their social media websites. That's the charges. That's what they're accusing me of. That's what they've tried to prove. Nothing to do with my webcam studio. So any video of me saying, hey, I've got these webcam girls working for me, that's eight years old or seven years old, has nothing to do with the case. The police have seen them. The police have spoken to my ex-employees. Everyone told the police to get fucked. It's a completely legal business. There are millions of cam girls working all over this great city. Not for me, for other companies. That's not human trafficking, one. Two, I've never done any form of human trafficking, but if you're my fan, you already know that. And I will prove that in court. So I've covered the Jewish question. I've covered the trans question. I'd like to talk a little bit about a man named Matt Walsh. Now, a lot of you are familiar with Matt Walsh because if you're a fan of me, you may well be a fan of him. Matt Walsh is a well-to-do, well-meaning, intelligent individual who recently produced a movie called What is a Woman? If you haven't seen What is a Woman, despite Matt Walsh subtly insulting me, I will tell you to go and watch it. I think it's a very great piece of film. It's a very great idea. But Matt Walsh had some relatively unkind words, and I think untrue words to say, about my brother recently. And I'd like, because I know Matt Walsh will eventually see this, to correct him, because I, I admire his work, in short. And I don't want him to get the wrong idea about me, because it's very easy when you listen to the mainstream media and the tabloids and the headline news to get a bad idea or a wrong idea about exactly who me and Andrew are and exactly what it is that we represent. Matt Walsh's criticism of Andrew went a little something like this. Yes, Andrew stands up for masculinity. Yes, young men need a hero to look up to. Yes, work hard, make money is a great thing to tell the young men. Yes, training is a good thing to tell the young men. But Andrew's wrong because the future depends on people like me having my wife and my kids. And me and my wife are a married couple and we have kids. And the strong family unit is the only thing that's going to fix society. And Andrew Tate just wants to run around having sex with a bunch of beautiful women. And that's not going to fix society. Okay, one, Matt has fundamentally misunderstood what mine and Andrew's family unit is and what mine and Andrew's family unit means. I would argue to Matt, because he probably will see this, and I have nothing against him. I'm making this very clear. I don't want anyone insulting the guy. That my family unit is much stronger than his family unit. So here's the way I operate, and here's the way that men like me operate. It's certainly the way that lots of people in the Arab community operate. It's certainly how a lot of people in uh, Japan operate, how a lot of people in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh operate. This is not something I have made up. This has been the way for humanity to propagate the entire world. Because before civilization, before farming and supermarkets and money, people lived in the family units like the ones I have. So let me take two hypothetical family units. I'm not going to take me and Matt Walsh because I don't actually like talking about people's families. And I think that's very um, a mean thing to do, even though he did it to me, kind of. I'm going to let it slide. Let's talk about two hypothetical people. One person believes what Matt Walsh believes. He's married to his wife. He has his three kids. He's a good Christian man, and he's raising them as best as he can. 
One of them is a fan of Andrew Tate or Twisted Tate. Him and his two brothers live in one giant house. They pool all their resources. They make a bunch of money. They live with all three of their wives, all under one roof. Maybe one of them is a Muslim who has two wives or three wives. There are 10 children in that household. And the 10 children are being raised by this group of three men and five women. Everyone knows who their two parents are. There's nothing degenerate or weird about it. But one is a family unit, as Matt describes, and one is a clan. Now, if we talk about the clan versus the American Christian family unit, I would argue that although Matt Walsh seems very happy with his wife and his kids, and I'm sure he is, and I wish him all the best, statistically, that's not the experience. Statistics are against Matt's model because this usually fails. And when it fails, it could fail in lots of different ways. The woman can leave the man in the family unit and take his kids away and move in with another man. The man can die, or in which case that the family unit is left destitute and broke. A woman is left with her kids to look after them for herself. The man is at work. The woman may stay home, but one woman is trying to look after three or four kids by herself with very little help. I feel like there are many points of failure to the traditional Matt Walsh-style family unit. Whereas in the clan-style family unit, which is the way that humans always lived before civilization, if one of the men dies, you still have a good man in the household making money, able to take care of everybody. If one of the women leaves, you still have a household full of people willing to take and willing and able to take care of the kids. The tribe is stronger. It is immune to things like divorce. It is immune to things like the death of one single person. I feel like my family unit is stronger and better than his. And I am going to raise more kids who may be more successful and better educated and contribute more to the world than his kids. Maybe. But, you know, to say Andrew Tate just wants to run around and have sex with girls on a yacht, you've watched one video of him on a yacht, of which... None of the women there, I think he was even having sex with. We like to have fun. We like to do our things, but we take family very, very seriously. And if you look at the way me and Andrew have come up in the world, from nobody to multi, multi, multi-millionaire, most influential men on the planet without ever doing anything illegal. Yeah, I know though. Your human trafficker is going to come out. Everyone knows I'm not. Um, I believe that me and Andrew sticking together as a clan has been very, very successful. And I think that Matt Walsh would be more successful today if he had a brother who he worked together with and lived together with, and helped raise his children, and whose kids got along, that would be wonderful. So I would argue that my family unit is better. So I take your rebuke, Matt Walsh, and I raise you that clans are better than individual marriages because the statistics on them suck, and I have no doubt that you're going to be happy. But um, maybe come and see how I live, maybe, before you shit on it. Speaking of coming to see where I live, I want to address a very serious issue that's been happening lately. Fans of mine have been trying to show up at my house. Now, people have tried to show up at my house, tried to argue with my security, tried to bring chocolates thinking they're funny, thinking that there's a chance that they may get a picture with me, exchange a word with me through the gate, or that something beneficial or positive might happen to them. I'm going to explain what happens to people when they come to my house. 
first I'm going to pour another drink. People have come to my house many times. Some showing support, some not showing support. Here's what happens. They show up. They are met by three to four giant Romanian security guards. They are told to leave. Sometimes they are pushed away. They are threatened if they do not leave. And eventually they leave. Here are the things that don't happen. They don't see me. They don't talk to me. They don't interact with me. They don't get photos with me or my brother or anyone else. I'm going to explain why you shouldn't turn up at my house. And hopefully all of my fans will listen to this and they'll understand. One, have some respect. This is where I live. My daughter is often walking around here. She's two, two years old. Don't come to my house ever because I'm not going to come and talk to you. Doesn't matter if I'm on house arrest or I'm not on house arrest. Also, you have to understand if you're smart, my smart fans don't come to my house. I'm going to tell you why. Because if you are Tristan Tate and you have hundreds of people writing you every day saying you're the man, top G, love you, you love your brother, thank you for inspiring me. But you also have 10 people writing you every day saying, I'm going to fucking shoot you in the face. I'm going to run a knife through your heart. I'm going to kill your baby daughter. Then you have to understand that when you show up at my house, I don't know who the fuck you are. Why would I make a pattern of marching outside my door? Hey, guys, handshake. Yeah, selfie. When that's how the fucking assassin's going to show up. I don't give a fuck who you are. If you jump over my gate, my security are going to manhandle you. Do not come to my house. It is disrespectful to me. This is my private abode. I do not want to be harassed here by anybody. This is where my children are. This is where I live. This is where my mother comes to visit. Don't show up here. I will never grant you an audience ever, ever. And people have tried to trick me. They've shown up pushing one of them in a wheelchair, waved at my cameras, trying to pull on my heartstrings. I can't come outside because I don't know who you are. If you have my number and you want an invite to my house, call me. And if you don't, don't show up. It's that simple. Ooh. Tristan, what do you think of student loan cancellations? Should we cancel student debt for all those hardworking university students who have buried themselves in debt and they can't pay for their own choices? Should we bail them out? I'm going to explain in a way that I think an original idea to me, this is an original idea to break it down the way that I've broken it down. In a way that I like to explain it to everybody, do you think we should cancel student loans. No, you should not cancel student loans. And I'm going to explain why. The world is a very vast and very complex place. And the ecosystem and the labor market of this earth is intensely complex. And when it's that complex, people can come up with stupid arguments. Oh, but educated people help everybody because you need a doctor and you need... cool. Let's leave out all the complexities because I don't want to make this a two-hour conversation. I'm going to make it very, very simple. Let's pretend the entire world and the entire labor, labor market and the entire, um, what's the word, ecosystem is one single McDonald's 
restaurant. You have the owner, the billionaire in the system. You have the managers, the millionaires in the system. You have this sub-management, the assistant managers. They're the guys who are very well off in the ecosystem. You have the fucking fry cooks. They're the dudes who are just about scraping by, the tradesmen. And you have the janitor or whoever's sweeping the floors, and that's your minimum wage person in the economy. Let's imagine the, the entire world is one single McDonald's restaurant. And I'm going somewhere with this. Hear me out. Five people all turn 18. Four of them decide to go to work and one decides to go to university. Those four people, because they are not university educated, are janitors. Maybe one's a fry cook after a while. Maybe two are fry cooks after a while. Doesn't matter. But one of these people goes to university. So for three years, he doesn't work while the fry cooks are fry cooking away and the janitors are sweeping and mopping away. And after that person gets out of university, he goes to McDonald's and says, okay, I want a job now in the economy, in the McDonald's restaurant. And they say, okay, you are now the assistant manager of McDonald's. He is the boss. He holds a position of authority in society, in the economy, in the ecosystem, over everybody else, all of his peers who decided not to go to university, all of the people who decided to hit the workforce early and not get that education. And what did he have to pay for that? $50,000. He paid $50,000 for his education, and he gets to be the boss. He gets to be a high earner. He gets to be the man with a position of authority over the others. But the others pay tax. The working man pays tax. The man with the work boots on pays tax. The guy hanging steel pays tax. The painters pay tax. The men who sweep the streets pay tax. Why should these people fund the education of the others who wish to lead from the front in positions of authority because of their education and their knowledge? Why? The answer is you shouldn't. And then there's the age-old argument. Well, Tristan, not all degrees are as useful as others. Some people come out of university and they're broke. Well, let me tell you something. Buyer's remorse. You need to have cars on the street. Cars are the second most, uh, the second, uh, the second biggest amount of debt in young people comes from leasing cars and uh, taking cars out on higher purchase agreements. Now, if you decide to buy a nice, reliable Toyota, good, you get to drive around. And people need cars. The economy needs cars. But if you decide to buy a really old Chevy Mustang that you could try to make work because it looks really cool and it doesn't work all the time, that's your fault for making that choice. And it's not the people who drive Toyota's problem to pay tax money to fix your fucking Mustang. In the same way that if you are a dummy and you decide to go study gender studies at Boston Tech or whatever, and some smart guy decides to get a law degree or to go to medical school, to become a doctor or do something useful, then fuck you and fuck your stupid degree and fuck your student debt. Not my problem. You bought it. Everyone knows gender studies degrees are useless. Everybody, even the people taking them, even the fucking professors. So I don't actually give a shit. If your gender studies degree didn't help you get a job in the workforce, you paid for it. 
When I go out and spend $10,000 drinking champagne and wake up with remorse the next day, like, oh, I shouldn't have bought that champagne. That was stupid. It just gave me a headache. A taxpayer? No. You bought it. Your problem. Fuck student debt forgiveness. <coughs> Another question I got that I think I'll touch on because I'm enjoying this. I'm going to go through a few super chats first. Everyone's asking where Luke is. Shut the fuck up about Luke. I don't care where Luke is. So you shouldn't care. And also, if I know where he is, I ain't going to tell you because I'm not a fucking snitch. Quit asking me. So blowing up the fucking chat about Luke. $100 super chat. I think that's Runfold who sent that. Listen, this is me talking. Who gives a shit about Luke? Fuck Luke. Hi, Luke. If you're watching. Probably are watching. Let's get to the highest paying uh, Super Chats first. Who's your favorite Trailer Park Boys, Boys character and why? Ricky is my favorite because Ricky will never leave Julian's side no matter what. And he's loyal to the end. He doesn't have to be the smartest. He doesn't have to be the idea maker. Ricky is the loyal one. I like Ricky the most. Kyle, glad to see you're doing well. Can you show us the DuPont collection? No, I can't because I'm not going back inside. But I've got a few DuPonts here. This limited edition is about $7,000. It's very cool. It's the only one I've got on my desk, so I will show you because you asked. When am I coming back to the Netherlands? What's my favorite city there? Don't know. And Alkmaar. Alkmaar is the best. I'm concerned about your blasphemy and cursing. Fuck you. Hope that answers your super chats well enough. Come on, guys. Get some interesting questions in here. These are pretty boring. What, Luke? Ask about Luke? Who cares about Luke? Not me. Favorite world leader of all time? I get asked this a lot. And, uh, and I'm going to give you a very non-obvious answer. Because obviously I could say Napoleon Bonaparte and the people who I admire the most in history. Favorite historical figure, you know. But that's not what I was asked. I was actually asked this question. The, your favorite world leader of all time, leader of a country of all time, which is a very different question to your favorite historical figure. So I thought I'd educate you all. Ah. On a king called Albert I of Belgium, who was the king of Belgium during World War I. Why is Albert I my favorite world leader of all time? Because Albert I was the single, sorry, he was the last leader to maintain an age-old tradition. And that age-old tradition is leading his army from the front. In World War I, when Kaiser Wilhelm was comfortable in Germany, when the marshals of France were comfortable on their train, relaxing, and the men were dying in the trenches. Do some reading on Albert I of Belgium and what he was doing. He enlisted in the army. He led attacks himself over the trenches and fought in the mud alongside his men. Which isn't that weird in a historical context. But for the time it was weird. Especially because he was the Kaiser's cousin, by the way. He was the cousin of the Kaiser of Germany and he was fighting against them. And two, because he was the last man ever to do it. And I feel like that tradition died with him. Andrew recently said on the PBD podcast, shout out to Patrick Bet David, it's a G, that um, 
politics, real politics ended when leaders stopped fighting from the front. When leaders stopped charging headfirst with the rest of their army at the enemies, that's when real politics ended. Because they're happy to send us all to go die in ditches and go die in wars. No, no, Napoleon did not do this too. Whoever's typing that, Napoleon did not do that too. Napoleon was present on the battlefield, but he did not lead from the front. And back when he was an officer and he did engage in combat, he was not the leader. So get your fucking history straight. Don't try and correct me on my own fucking streams. I'll punch you in the face. And Albert I of Belgium was still the last king to fucking lead his country into combat anyway. So that is my favorite leader of all time. Tristan, why would you only watch a James Bond movie if James Bond was white? Isn't that racist? Now, we know my views on The Little Mermaid. I've covered this on a cigar meeting. But I recently tweeted, I will boycott any movie where James Bond is black, Asian, or South American, or female, white male Bonds only. And everyone lost their fucking mind again, started calling me a fucking racist again, which annoys me because obviously I'm half black myself, but I don't want a black actor playing James Bond. And people will say stupid things, but, 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 but why can't he be black? I'll tell you why. Because I don't think you should fuck with another man's work. I think if another man develops something really iconic or really special, I don't believe in messing with it and putting a spin on it and then pretending you're somehow more intelligent than he is. So Ian Fleming was an author and he wrote 12 books about a character named James Bond. They were the most ser famous series of books arguably ever written. They spawned more movies than most books ever written. He created the most common, sorry, the most iconic character that's ever been come up with, arguably. And in every single book that you read, because I have read all 12 of them, is there 13? Ooh, but are you counting The Spy Who Loved Me? Because The Spy Who Loved Me is not really a James Bond novel. It was re written by Ian Fleming, but it is told from a female's perspective. Don't get technical with me. My point is this. My point is this. It is not anyone's job. Some woke Hollywood wannabe cool movie producer to sit around now that Ian Fleming is dead and the description of Bond in every book is white skin, black hair, ice blue eyes, thin lips, thin lips. I'm half black. Look at the size of these. And butcher his work. Well, let's make it black now. No, stick with the original character or write a new movie about a new secret agent and make that secret agent black. If you're so creative and so intelligent, then you write a new book or a new movie, make it a black secret agent. I have no, I have no problem with blacks being secret agents or whites or Chinese or South Americans being secret agents in movies. But James Bond is white. And to fuck with Ian Fleming's work is actually blasphemous almost. I won't use the word blasphemy because I'm a Christian. But it's certainly wrong because you're not smarter or better than Ian Fleming. And you shouldn't be fucking with another man's work. Which brings me to my second point. Like I did with the transgender argument earlier, okay? Remember that? When I broke down the argument in a way that I wasn't talking about transgenders. I'm going to break down the argument in a way that I don't talk about black or white. Let's take a movie. There's a movie I watched uh, 
a couple years ago. I'll give it three stars. It was okay. Called The Darkest Hour. Who's seen The Darkest Hour? It's a movie about Winston Churchill. Because everyone loves to give these extreme examples. What if Obama was played by a white man? What if Martin Luther King was played by a Chinese guy? No, no, no. Stupid arguments. Let me break it down in an intelligent way. The Darkest Hour is a movie about Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill in the movie is played by an American actor named Gary Oldman, who is a fantastic actor, super talented actor, maybe one of the most talented actors of this entire generation. Wonderful guy, beautiful talent. So why? Because Gary Oldman is white and Winston Churchill is white. Why did Gary Oldman sit in the makeup chair for six hours every day before filming? Why? If it doesn't matter about being fat, it doesn't matter about being bald, it doesn't matter about having a cigar in your face. Oh, it's just acting. Actors can play anyone. Why didn't they leave little skinny, mustache, long-haired Gary Oldman without makeup when he played Winston Churchill? One word. Authenticity. Authenticity is why they put him through the makeup. Authenticity is why they put him in the fat suit. Authenticity is why they made him fake his accent. Authenticity is the word that we're all looking for here. So, no, you should not make anybody black or white or Chinese or South American or any race they shouldn't be in movies. And James Bond is a white guy. So that's why I will boycott any single movie because I think it's lazy. I think you're going to make the new James Bond movie exciting by making him black. Why not make it exciting by being good? Why not take Henry Cavill, who looks archetypal like a Bond archetype? You know, you don't need people like Idris Elba, who is a guy who I've met and an intensely talented actor and a super cool guy, by the way who makes amazing movies, you don't need him to be James Bond. You don't. Just make a better Bond movie. If I get one more super chat asking about Luke, I'm cutting the stream off. Let me get through a few of these. How do you deal with your friends you outgrow? You don't have to deal with it. It just happens. When you outgrow them, you'll know. That's it. Thoughts on the riots in France. I think French people have their priorities wrong. If I was a Frenchman, I would have rioted when that fucking psychopath ran around stabbing babies. No? So are French people really rioting is the question. People say French people are rioting. Is it French people? If French people wanted to riot, I think the time for French people to riot was when that Syrian migrant, male, who should not have been let into Europe, ran around stabbing babies. Why are they rioting now? Some criminal with a record got shot. Do you think it's the French people out on the street smashing everything up? I don't know. I honestly haven't looked into it very much. But I would think that it's the kin and the friends of the man who got shot, the other criminals and the other foreigners. France is full of foreigners. Should it be? I don't think it should have been. I feel like countries 
in times of strife should send their women and children to Europe, and I'd, I'd be happy to take the women and children in. I don't think military-aged males in large numbers should flood into any country. And that's not anti-Islamic, and that's not anti-black, and that's not anti-brown. It's not anti-white, because I don't think Ukrainian men should be flooding into France. I just don't think men should be flooding into other countries in large numbers with nothing to do but rely on the state. I think men should stay in their country and rebuild the country and deal with the problems. I think Europe should take women and children only. So my thoughts on the riots in France, I guess I have questions about the riots. Are they French people rioting? If so, where were the French people when all the babies were getting stabbed by that psychopath? Personally, if I was French, that's where I would have drawn the line. The guy who got shot was uh, some young criminal. I believe he had a massive record. He was running from the police. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I don't know what to say about the riots in France. I think the situation will never become clear because the French will suppress the news. France is the only country that has banned Rumble. You can't watch this in France without a VPN. So you know what? Fuck France. I wish the best for all the French people. I wish they had a leader like Charles Charles de Gaulle like they did in World War II. I wish brave French men would make a comeback and take their fucking country back. Not just from migration or any of the issues that it's facing, but from dickheads like Macron. So I'll pray for the people of France and I wish you all the best. Nigel Farage recently said that he's lost all his banks. From big banking groups, all his banks have just cut him off just because you're not allowed a bank account anymore. And everyone's shocked. Everyone's blowing up. Oh my God, Nigel Farage lost all his banks. Welcome to the club, Nigel Farage. They got me first. So yeah, it sucks. And I'm glad it's I'm glad they're doing it to a more a less polarizing character like Nigel Farage, who I think is a total gentleman, and I would happily, happily let him lead the United Kingdom above any other politician that exists right now. Nigel Farage is one of the realest politicians in the whole of the UK. And I wish he could take power, but the, the system simply won't allow him. But uh yeah, you've been debanked, you've lost all your banks, Nigel. Me too. You ain't the first and you won't be the last, but I'm glad it's happened to you only because it raises the issue to a higher, more prominent level. People are now paying attention. No one cares. I don't have banks, but um, hopefully they'll have to fix it because I believe that people have the right to banking access. That's something Obama preached, isn't it? People have the right to banking access. He tried to set up banking access in local post offices. I think that's one of Obama's policies. So even if you're liberal, you believe everyone is allowed to have access to banks because that was an Obama-era policy in the United States. So yeah, you shouldn't be fucking with anyone's banks. Hey, Tristan, comment on the Justin Roiland situation. So I actually know what you're talking about because I did a tweet on Justin Roiland before. If anyone doesn't know who Justin Roiland is, he's the co-creator and the voice behind most of the characters on a hit show called Rick and Morty, which is relatively entertaining. I've seen a few episodes of it. Clearly a very smart guy, clearly a very talented guy, clearly a very funny guy. And I don't, because I know people are saying Justin Roiland did this, Justin Roiland did that. Let me tell you why Justin Roiland got fired from his show. He got fired from the show that he created, his baby. His masterpiece, the thing that put him in the spotlight, the only reason we're talking about him today, Rick and Morty, he got fired from that show because 
his wife or ex-wife, I believe, had made some allegations of domestic violence. Allegations. He is a wife beater. He beats me up. He got fired. He got kicked off his own show. And turns out there's nowhere near enough evidence to even dream about convicting him for domestic violence. Was she lying? I don't know. I don't know Justin Roiland, and I don't know his wife. What I do know is this. He will be, despite never facing criminal charges and never having enough evidence to put him in jail, he will be labeled as a wife beater and a, uh, a man who is domestically violent for the rest of his life. He is guilty until proven innocent. And then he's still guilty afterwards. I believe in the judge who's in charge of my case. I believe in the Romanian justice system. I believe that now the evidence needs to be reviewed that I'm going to be found not guilty because I've never human trafficked anyone. I truly believe that. But once I'm found not guilty, once I'm free to continue my life, there will be people in every corner in the world who, when they hear the name Tristan Tate, will think human trafficker, which actually as a father makes me sick because if I stood in front of a man and they said, oh, this guy, he went to jail. And I said, what for? And they said, oh, we used to kidnap women and force them into prostitution. I'd punch that man in the face. I can't think of anything worse to be called. I've almost, sad to say, got used to it. And I'm going to have to get used to it because I'm now a human trafficker forever, which is sickening. So Justin Roiland, I'm not saying he is a domestic abuser, and I'm not saying he's not a domestic abuser. What I'm saying is there's no evidence he ever did these things, but he got fired from his show and his name has now been dragged through the dirt and he will forever be known as a domestic abuser irregardless of whether it happened or not. I genuinely believe that for sexual related crimes or for crimes like uh, violence against women, I genuinely believe they should protect the name of the man accused and the person who's uh, making the allegations until the case is over. If the man is found guilty, by all means, put him up on the TV, drag his name through the dirt. Because let me tell you something, if they had to protect my name, this case would have been dropped a long time ago. It's only going on because of the media. There's immense international pressure because I apparently kidnap women and fucking make them walk the streets and suck dicks and do disgusting things. I'm a pimp. I'm a human trafficker. That's a sickening thought that I could ever do anything like that. But the whole world has been told this by the media. So now Romania has to do the work of finding me innocent and looking at the evidence and reviewing what facts the police have found, which are basically none so this would be over if they protected my name so i think they should protect men's names until they're found guilty and if they're found guilty of rape or something fucking hang them i don't care people are the scum of the earth but for those who get caught up and falsely accused now nah, you need to protect their names i could take it but a lot of men would have killed themselves in my position 100 percent twisting what is your favorite book the Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo is a book about a man who's coming up in the world, a self-made individual, very smart, very charming, very charismatic, due to be wed to a very beautiful girl. When a team of ungrateful, furious, jealous, angry people set him up and throw him in jail for a crime he doesn't commit. He serves 13 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, that didn't happen. And when he gets released, he becomes one of the richest, most influential men in the world. And he uses that influence to wreak revenge on everybody who wronged him. 
Ironically, that's been my favorite book for the last six years. Here I am, Edmund Dantes. It's insane. I'm going to answer a few more questions because I'm smoking this cigar incredibly slowly. Why am I shaking? Oh, I'm shaking because I'm tapping my leg. Yeah, I'm tapping my leg, you see? I always tap my leg. I'll stop if you think I'm on crack or something. Don't want anyone thinking I'm on crack. Tristan, what do you think of affirmative action and reparations? This is topical, so I guess I'll cover it. I don't really like to go into racial issues too much, but I do like it because I get to give a balanced perspective because I'm obviously not biased on any side. Affirmative action. The Supreme Court was completely correct to throw it out. Best man for the job. Best man for the job always. And I don't believe that it's the 1950s. It's not the 1940s. It's not the 1960s. If you're a hardworking black man, you can make it wherever you want in the United States. Barack Obama became president of the United States. Our current vice president is a half Indian, half black woman. Don't tell me you need affirmative action anymore. And I saw a tweet that annoyed me. Some idiot said, oh, Justice Clarence Thomas cut down the ladder he climbed up by getting rid of affirmative action. I know quite a lot about Justice Clarence Thomas. And let me tell you something. He is an exceptionally smart man. He may be the finest legal mind in the United States, not just now, but of our entire generation. And he was stifled and blocked on his way up. By who, you ask? Racists? I mean, I guess so. But the answer is Democrats. Joe Biden gave him a hard time being admitted. And he almost didn't make the bench. So he suffered now that these Democrats are saying that he climbed up a ladder of affirmative action after trying to hold him down, that's a very sick thing to say. Justice, Justice Clarence Thomas earned absolutely everything he has in the world. And God bless that man. Such an intelligent individual. And he's the guy who was part of throwing out affirmative action. And good for him. Reparations. I'm going to talk about reparations for five minutes. I'll tell you why. Because like a lot of things, being a mixed race person, I think that my answer to reparations is slightly different to most people's. No, I do not think any black person who's the descendant of slaves should get reparations. One, because... I'm a half black person. I am the descendant of slaves and I do not want white people in the United States to give me any money. I do not, my dad would not have wanted white people to give him any money. And he's certainly a black man. A lot of white Americans like the Italians didn't even come to America until 1919, 1910, 1920, decades after slavery was abolished. Who do they owe money to? Third of all, there was a bunch of black slave owners. I can go down all these various arguments that we've all heard before. But I think this one's quite unique. I haven't heard it spoken about too many times. I don't think reparations should be given for this reason. And I'm speaking right now as a black person or as a person who is the descendant of African-American slaves. Because I think 
black communities are owed fairness. When Donald Trump was president, black people had the lowest black unemployment in American history. You think the Democrats care about black people? I don't think they do. Donald Trump was doing the reparations, giving the reparations that I think black people deserve. He was fixing the communities. He was stopping disparity between employment. More fathers with jobs would have stayed home. That's a big problem in the black community too. Donald Trump, when he was in charge, had the lowest instance of black unemployment in American history. Isn't that wild? Now, if you were to fix society like that, where black people were no more unemployed than white people, black people's income was no lower on average than white people, black university uh, education was just as high as white people, black high school uh, pass rates were just as high as people, those are the reparations that the black community needs. And I believe the Republicans were getting the job done. Those are the opinions, uh, sorry, those are the reparations that black people need. Because let me tell you something. If you do not equalize society, if you do not educate, if you do not fix communities, if you do not fix the problem with fathers not being at home in the black community, and you write everyone a check, the problems are going to become worse. They're going to become 10 times worse. Or even if they stayed the same, in 10 years time, 20 years time, when a well-meaning politician comes along and says, hey, we need to fix the black unemployment rate. Somebody could say, no, they've been paid. Let's close the book on that. They've had their reparations. Now they have to punch it our way or else. When someone says, hey, black fathers aren't at home as much as white fathers, someone can quite rightly come along and say, nope, we paid them in 2023. We're equal. And that's a disturbing prospect. That is a very disturbing prospect. The problems being fixed are the reparations. And once the problems are fixed, no well-meaning or intelligent black person is even going to ask for financial reparations. I think that's been well over an hour. I think I'm going to call this cigar night a night. It's your last two minutes to give me any good questions. And if they're not good, then I'm going to hang up. I mean, I've got one here. Thanks for all you do. How do you stay disciplined despite adversity? What are my choices? What are your choices? Don't stay disciplined. Let your life fall apart. There's no choice. There's no option. These are very easy questions to answer. And if you listen to any of my podcasts or any of my work, you should already know my opinions on this. Who's a better kickboxer, Badahari or Rico Verhoeven? I believe Rico Verhoeven is the better kickboxer overall. Rico Verhoeven is a very talented man. Have you ever been to Scotland? Have you ever been to Cornwall? Guys, I appreciate the $20 and it's going to go to a good cause, but no one cares about this. You might be interested if I've ever been to Scotland, but trust me, the chat watching are not. So I'm not going to waste our time with stupid questions. War in Ukraine. 
That's a big one. What do I think on the war in Ukraine? I'm not going to talk about Ukraine. I'm going to give you a historical example. Because history often repeats itself. And I'm going to try to explain this in a way that doesn't offend anybody. I'm going to try to explain this in a way that most people with the brain can think, whether they're pro-Putin or pro-Zelensky, and try to understand the example I'm giving. So I'm not going to talk about Ukraine. I'm going to talk about a country that no longer exists. It's a country called Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia is a country which now has been broken down into many smaller nations. Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, the, former Ma- the former Macedonia Republic of... Sorry, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, Albania. And um, it's been broken down to a lot of other countries. But Yugoslavia was a country that had a president once. The president's name was Slobodan Milosevic. And my friend, my trainer, my, my hero, Amir Sabasic, fought in this war. So here's what happened in Yugoslavia. A man took power. He hated the other ethnic groups within his country. He wanted his ethnic group to reign supreme, essentially. And he used the military of his country to attack other ethnic groups. Uh, People were dying. Women and children were dying all over the country. Milosevic was eventually trialed in The Hague for war crimes. But when they saw what was happening to the people who couldn't defend themselves against Milosevic and his his aggression, America intervened. America intervened by dropping bombs on Belgrade. They put troops in Bosnia. They put United Nations peacekeepers in to try and stop the fighting and to try and stop the violence. Now, whether you are pro-Ukrainian or pro-Russian, you have to understand that before Zelensky, before all of this, Poroshenko, the leader of Ukraine, seized power, banned all other political parties, and started enacting violence on other people within his country. That did happen in 2014. Now, with Yugoslavia, everybody's happy to say, yeah, the Americans saved the day by jumping in and stopping the violence and stopping the killing. But the people being killed by Poroshenko, and this is before Zelensky, so I'm not saying anything about him, were ethnic Russians. And it's a very tricky situation, a very tricky situation, Because when Putin steps in and says, oh, no, I'm intervening here because you're killing ethnic Russians, the West is very quick to criticize him. But the war in Yugoslavia was in the early 90s. It wasn't so long ago when America had a very similar response and the attitudes of the people in the world were very different. If you want to hate Russian people, I would advise you not to. I would advise you to understand that during World War II, Russia were the allies of the people in the West. I would advise you to actually look at who the real heroes of World War II are, although the D-Day landings are what we are taught, and they are iconic, and they were very important events, and the men who landed on the shores of Normandy were exceptionally brave and did an amazing thing to defeat Nazi Germany. I would ask you, what are the most deadly battles of uh, World War II? What's the most deadly battle that ever took place? Where did it take place? What was the biggest tank battle that ever took place? And between who? The majority of the fighting against Nazi Germany was done on the Eastern Front by brave Russian men. The Battle of Kursk being the largest tank battle that ever happened. 
I would ask you which flag flew above the Reichstag building when Berlin was finally, when Berlin finally fell on the day that Hitler died. Whose flag was flying above it? Who lost the most men of World War II? Who lost more men than all the other powers in the world put together almost? I would ask you to look at these questions and to do some research before you attack Russian people and before you condemn Russian people. Because I have many Russian friends. I have some Ukrainian friends too. And um, yeah, learn your history and you'll be far less judgmental is my advice. That's all I'm going to say about the war in Ukraine. If you've learned something today, good for you. The point of me sitting here and talking to you is for you to learn something. The point of me sitting here and talking to you is because I feel like my supporters and my followers are all friends of mine. I feel like I'm educating everybody. I feel like maybe I'm sharing an opinion you disagree with. And you could be right and I could be wrong. But thank you for joining me on this emergency meeting. Emergency meeting? Saying a fucking emergency meeting. There's no Mr. Producer here. Thank you for joining me on this cigar night. Happy smoking, gentlemen. Hit the gym the next morning if you decide to smoke a drink like I do. And have a wonderful week.